It's the top of the hour. Time for another feel-good hour from your well-being and happiness station. We are Yawa Radio. With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone, and feel-good music. Yawa Radio is about well-being, happiness, and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio. Time for another inspirational quote. Be happy. Be inspired. The less energy we waste regretting the past or worrying about the future, the more energy we will have for what's right in front of us. Ryan Holiday. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Before we get into today's show, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back after this track. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move mountains And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid I'll rise up and I'll do it a thousand times again and I'll rise up, I like the waves, I rise up, in spite of the ache, I rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again, you, Silence is quiet And it feels like it's getting hard to breathe And I know you feel like dying But I promise we would take the world to its feet Move I won't dance Bring it to its feet
for that we have each other I'm Steve Phillip, and you're listening to Jordan Space. Every fortnight for 60 Minutes, we want Jordan Space to be a place that you can come to and learn more about the issues surrounding what can often be seen as a taboo subject, suicide. Our mission is to open up the conversation in a way that helps more people feel comfortable about sharing their experiences of suicide, and in doing so, help smash the stigma surrounding this issue. Each 60-minute show will include conversations with our regular co-hosts, Danielle and Paul. We'll also provide regular updates about our work at the Jordan Legacy and how it's progressing. And through a mix of conversation, guest stories and music, our goal is to have you leaving Jordan space, feeling inspired and believing that no matter how bad things get, there is always hope. Before we hear from our guests today, let's say hello to our regular co-hosts on Jordan Space, Danny and Paul. Welcome both, fresh from our third show and the interview on the topic of burnout with Dr. Sonia. Of course, the timing of this show was extremely relevant given the tragic news about the suicide of Dr. Gail Milligan that same week, which featured heavily across uh, the national news channels, of course. Yeah, that's right, Steve. Um, obviously another tragic death and um, Gail Milligan's husband saying that she was overwhelmed and that uh, her workload was relentless uh, and uh, tragically leading to to her suicide. Obviously, yeah, these 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 events get massive coverage uh, on the news. Our job is to make sure it's not just a, a one off day uh, that this is in the news. There was also another news story last week, which is really interesting, which was the tree memorial outside Ealing Hospital, uh, the first ever memorial to um, NHS staff dying by suicide, uh, which I think you, you, you also saw, Steve, covered, um, prompted by the Adam Kay um, Penn story. I was going to say that, Paul, yeah. I mean, as soon as you mentioned that, of course, it, it reminded me of uh, This Is Going to Hurt, the series uh, about Adam Kay, uh, of course. Um, um, so, yes, I mean... It was interesting, wasn't point. it, that the, 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 they had the drama, the TV drama, and in that episode when one of the lead characters, Shruti, took her own life, again, absolutely overworked, constantly and undervalued, um, they planted the tree 
outside in, in the hospital and, and people in real life thought there was a tree there. So they were getting lots of people going to the tree, uh, which, which wasn't there, but now they've actually put a tree there. Yeah, it's just really interesting, isn't it? How when well-written drama really crosses over into real life. Uh, Danny, did did uh, did you get to, to see some of the news um, about um, Gail Milligan yourself? I did, yeah. And I just think it's it's just so sad that someone working in a role where they where they're helping others can end up feeling so desperate and ill themselves. Um, it's just so important that the workload of doctors and others who work in very stressful jobs like that is, is properly managed, um, as is the amount of time they work, because um, I know the husband said that she was working very long hours um, with really no breaks in, in between. Um, it's just so important to manage that so they don't reach the point where it becomes too much. I, th- I think you're right. And that's one of the things that, you know, Sonia was saying that it, it, it is manageable, but it's got to be dealt with. You can't just continue working at that kind of pace because it, it, it is unresolved stress that builds up and, um, you know, all of a sudden can completely overwhelm you. So, yeah, very sad story. Very powerful uh, interview, um, of course, with Dr. Sonia. And look, whenever we we invite a guest to appear on this show, we we always ask them to share with us some of their favourite music tracks, which we then play in between us chatting, of course. Uh, For show one, we played a few of Jordan's favourite artists, such as Brian Adams and Boys to Men and Stevie Wonder. Uh, And then, of course, we had quite a surprise last week when uh, when Dr Sonia Hutton-Taylor suggested Silver Machine by Hawkwind, a tune I used to headbang to in my teenage years in the sixth form common room. Probably not a sight you want to imagine your dad doing, Danny. (laughs) <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> okay. Uh, of course, music often plays such an important role in people's lives. It, it might be from a nostalgic point of view, remembering songs from our youth or other impressionable times during our lives, such as leaving home at family weddings, when our children are born. And whenever I look back at key moments in my life, there often seems to be a song that I can immediately go to in my head that reminds me and is almost like an anchor to that that time funerals are one of those occasions of course when we choose songs that mean something to the person we've lost or to those who are bereaved this seems to be a particular time when the choice of songs becomes especially poignant and important in fact isn't this a topic you studied once paul yeah i mean i studied this um in a couple of ways and, and, and also when I did my counselling training and I was specialising in loss and grief we looked at the importance of music the role that music plays and yep funerals was part of that um, it's interesting how over time things shifted from historically it was very much funerals were very much sombre events it was about mourning the death it was generally in a church uh, it was often the priest um, saying some words and that has shifted over time to being more of a, a celebration of the life, um, the whole family being involved, readings from members of the family, and music really playing a big part in that. There was a big shift in the 80s with the, with the AIDS crisis, with lots of young men, young, vibrant uh, men with lots of um, friends wanting to celebrate their lives. And a lot of stigma, obviously, around at that time with families not wanting to... Uh, to talk about it in the same way as their friends wanting to talk about it. But um, yeah, music, when you look at the top songs that are played at funerals, you get the very sad songs and you get the very happy songs. People want to have the joyous part of that celebration of life. 
And then you get weird things like one of the most popular songs is um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life by Monty Python from the life of Brian. Um, but there's, there's other um, aspects to music as well, which is that, you know, it, it helps people get through, yeah, loss and grief is a part of it, it helps people get through difficult times. Uh, there's a, a lot of people when they're asked about a song that got them through difficult times will quote things like um, Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush, uh, which just resonates with them and, and the song, the lyrics, the video, uh, the kind of reassuring voice from Kate Bush, you know, there's there's different components. Elton John actually said it helped him get through a period of serious depression. It's really interesting, Paul, isn't it? I mean, um, in terms of song choice, I'm kind of wondering whether the choice actually should be the person who's, whose funeral is going to be or, or whether it just says something about how they're remembered when the choice of music actually comes from people who knew and, and loved them and, and therefore potentially makes those songs even more poignant. Yeah, there's a lot of issues there, Steve. Um, I mean, it, it, I've worked with funeral um, providers. Uh, in, in, in most countries, there's small, lots of small funeral providers. In other countries, there's big corporate funeral providers, and and it's an interesting kind of market, if you like. But one of the things that funeral providers think about a lot is that people often don't plan their funeral, uh, and obviously, when there's a sudden loss, you know, there's no plan. It's 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 quite chaotic. Um, and they try and encourage people to think about it. It's a terrible thing to want to think about your own funeral or the funeral of loved ones. But part of that is saying, well, what, what would you want at your funeral? You know, where would you want your ashes um, scattered or, or things like that? Or would you want a burial or, you know, these are things that people often don't talk about and think about. So it is interesting when you do ask people about what music they would want played at their funeral, it, it gives you a real insight into that person. Absolutely, yeah. Um... Danny, we, we know that Jordan loved his music, and of course, music has been especially important in our lives since his suicide. Yeah, and obviously, you've you've mentioned both of you've mentioned um, sort of the significance of songs you play at the funeral, and then you know how that goes on when you hear those songs. Um, after that, really, um, you sort of have much more meaning, and then songs you hear on the radio as well. Um, obviously, we had um, Yorkshire's Got Talent. Um, winner 2022 Melody Reed sing um, at a hopeful live conference in December and at Jordan's live celebration last August, um, well, which was very emotional. Um, and I know we're really excited that a new EP is going to be released soon with the song Stay, um, which was taken from a poem by York poet Olivia Mulligan, um, who wrote the poem especially for the Hopeful Life conference and, and she read it for us at Jordan's uh, live celebration as well. Um, which was really lovely. Um, also at Jordan's live celebration, we had Big Ian and his band. Um, I think that and that really uplifted everyone and it, it made it feel more like we were celebrating Jordan's life um, instead of it just being a sombre event. Um, thank you, Danny, and thanks, Paul. Um, we're going to take a short break and, and when we return, we're going to hear from our guest, police sergeant and suicide prevention lead, Elaine Malcolm, as we discuss the topic of suicide through a child. This, this is Yawa Radio. Tune in to Yawa Radio every Sunday between four and six in the afternoon for the Calm and Joy Show with me, Gabrielle Trainer. Each week, I bring you the Calm and Joy Book Club. I chat with brilliant people, 
all about how we can find more calm and joy in our complicated, messy lives, and tons more, including top tunes, of course. So join me for the Calm and Joy show on Sundays from 4 p.m. on Yawa Radio. Time for another inspirational quote. Be happy. Be inspired. The creation of the world did not take place once and for all time, but takes place every day. Samuel Beckett. This this is Yawa Radio. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Since founding The Jordan Legacy, I've been fortunate in many ways to have come across some quite remarkable people who have reached out to support me, and many of whom have invited me to work with them on projects relating to the prevention of suicide. One of those people is someone who had also now count as a really good friend, and that is today's guest, Elaine Malcolm. Welcome to the show, Elaine. It's great to have you join us. How are you? Thank you, Steve. How are you? Um, thank you for having me. I'm really honoured to be on Jordan Space. I'm, I'm really good, thank you. Looking forward to, to talking to you. Um, Elaine, we're, we're not going to mention today the specific police force that you work with, but um, is it okay to, to mention about the role you've been working in there alongside your rank as a police sergeant? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, I'm operational mental health and suicide prevention lead. I've been doing this job for two years. Um, I could talk all day about things that I do and um, things that I get up to. But in short, it's um, working on how we can deliver the best service to the public when they're perhaps in mental health crisis or suicidal. But the suicide prevention part is getting training for our officers and staff so that we can um, respond in the best way that we can to people who are perhaps suicidal and get them the best care. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about other things that I've been up to with suicide prevention a bit later, but it's a subject really close to my heart. Oh, great. No, thank you. Now, um, I know you mentioned you're currently doing that role and I know you're you're moving on to another position with, within uh, the force. What, what are you going to miss most, do you think, about uh, your role with mental health and suicide prevention? Um, I'll absolutely just miss the whole of the work that I do with suicide prevention and meeting people like yourself who are so inspirational and who we can work with as a police service to to do our bit for suicide prevention. Um, I am going to stay, well, I am going to start as a volunteer for SOBS. Um, so nobody's getting rid of me out of the whole um, suicide prevention arena. So I'm really looking forward to that and and seeing what I can do to to help people out of work. No, that, that's great. And to hear that uh, you're going to be um, volunteering for the Survivors of uh, Suicide Bereavement uh, Charity, which is a wonderful organisation that I know has helped members within our family. That That's really good uh, to hear as well. Uh, Elaine, I was, I was particularly honoured that you invited me to speak at a police conference you organised for World Suicide Prevention Day last September. Tell us a little bit about that. I believe this was the first such event the Vorse had uh, ever held. Is that right? That's correct. And um, the idea was born, I think, when um, I was having coffee with you and one of our corporate communications managers. And um, we were we were talking about how we could get you to speak to our officers. And all of a sudden, by the time we left the cafe, I think we'd planned this massive conference that both police and fire and other partners could attend. Um, so 
it is your your fault, Steve. Thank you. Oh, for that. Right. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd, forgot, I'd forgotten all about, all about that uh, that meeting. But uh, no, um, look, that, that was really exciting. It was an amazing day. And, and I know it was uh, important. You had some pretty influential people there opening up the, the conference as well. Yeah, so um, we had five speakers, um, yourself being one of them, Steve. Um, and we had people in person who could watch the conference and also on Teams so that we could um, get more people to to attend and to hear the speakers. And the aim of it was to, um, well, to break the stigma with colleagues. Um, so although my role is operational, um, working to deliver that better service to members of the public, there's also a bit of a crossover with what we do internally with suicide prevention. Um, so being able to get everybody together, I think we had over 140 attendees in person and online, which is a really great number. And I'm confident that at least one person will have sought help after, after hearing you speak or hearing other speakers. So it was really, really great. And um, we are actually holding our second um, mental health and suicide awareness conference the day before World Suicide Prevention Day this year. So we've got five different speakers um, and we're hoping to have the same impact and hopefully some colleagues will get some some support as a result of the conference. That's really exciting to hear that, that it's kind of led to a second conference taking place and hopefully more after that as well. That, that's uh, really good news. Well, thank you, Elaine. We're going to give you a little bit of a break now and uh, we're going to play some music. Uh, and then when we come back, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about your personal experience, um, particularly that of uh, losing your father to suicide. So we're going to be right back after this break. I will go down 
There will be no white flag above my door I'm in love and always will be With inspirational guests from around the world, inspirational quotes, the inspirational book of the week, the meditation hour, the quiet zone and feel good music. Yawa Radio is about well-being, happiness and finding the beauty within. Enjoy. Be beautiful. Be happy. Be inspired. This is Yawa Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Now, one of the reasons that I invited you to join us on Jordan Space today is because, like me, you also have your own very sad and personal experience of suicide. Would you like to explain to our listeners what happened to you when you were just 12 years old? Yeah, so um, it was, I'll, I'll never forget the day. Um, it was the 13th of February, 1995. And um, I remember on the morning, I just didn't want to go to school. I knew something was wrong. I remember saying that I had a bad stomach. I just I just had a feeling. I, I don't know why. I don't know how. Um, I've always had a good sixth sense. So I think it maybe started then. Um, my mum and dad, they ran a, a business together. Um, I would normally be at school. So um, I don't know how the dynamics kind of worked. But my mom, this day, my mum went to work and my dad stayed at home. Um he was being quite distant. He spent a lot, a lot of time in his bedroom and he was writing something. I went to the door and I could see through the the crack in the door that he was he was writing and he'd scrunched pages up and he was throwing them. I don't know if it was into a bin or on the floor, I'm not sure. Um shortly after that, he said he was going out. Um I just knew something was wrong. I asked if I could go with him. I was quite insistent and um, I didn't want him to go. Um, I just knew, I just knew it would be the last time that I saw him. Um, when he left, he said to me and um, words that I'll never forget and um, remember I'll always love you. And he gave me a kiss and off he went. Um, like I said, I knew it would be the last time that I saw him. And it was the last time that that any of us saw him, any of the family saw him. Um, it, it was quite hard to articulate to my, to my mom um, that she needed to do something, that she needed to call the police. So I, I sat by the phone. Um, it was obviously 1995. We had a phone with, you know, a big cord. Um, I sat there thinking, how do I kind of say that she needs to get some help, that she needs to call the police, um, that he's not coming back? Um, I... I remember I felt sick and um, the nerves that I felt and probably a bit of adrenaline and just confusion. Um, I eventually rang her. I don't remember what she said. Um, I remember saying dad's gone, something like that. And he's not coming back. And I know the police were called. I'm not sure how that kind of played out after the call, but she obviously knew from my voice and what I'd said that, you know, something was seriously wrong. Um, I, it wasn't a very nice day because I felt sick. I felt sick all day with worry. Um, I waited till my my friend had finished school um, and we went out and I think I just wanted to feel a bit normal. Um, I, I, I still remember where we went and what we were doing and it was just 
in my head all of the time and I was kind of waiting for some news. We didn't have mobile phones or anything then. So eventually I went home um, and I was home for a little while before my uncle came. Um, I don't even think I was told that he was dead. I don't think I had to be told that he was dead. I think I just knew that he was that he was gone. I'd known all day. Um, my uncle was a serving police officer at the time and he broke the news to my mum and family came and I think some family might have been there already, but more family came um, and the house was full. Um, the I'd seen him writing in his bedroom and that was his, his, the note that he left us. Um, it had a page for me, which, well, we, we still have it. Um, left it with a couple um, who he'd seen nearby before he died. Um, and I do often wonder how, how they feel now and if they've been able to get over that because that can't be, can't be a nice thing to happen. Um, everything was kind of a blur after that. The house was full and um, all of the time we had family there that would come and cook for us and look after us really. And um, we had to keep the curtains closed and um, there was journalists knocking at the door and um, which was so, it was so alien um, to, to be happening. Um, suicide wasn't spoken a lot about, it wasn't spoken about a lot then. Um, it wasn't common. I think my mum had known knew one other person who lost a husband to suicide. Um, and yeah, so the journalist knocking at the door was really quite, really strange and really, it felt intrusive. Um, I know that's the job and, you know, that's fine. But um, yeah, it felt intrusive. And I remember one day hearing, it might have been the same day that the journalists were at the door, but there was a helicopter flying over the house. And I did wonder if it was, you know, a, a media helicopter. And I know that probably sounds really silly, but the, it was on the front page of, of the newspapers, national newspapers as well, which just, it, it had pictures. It's um, a really bizarre thing to remember that it made the front page of a paper. You know, he was just a, a normal working man. Um, it was, I guess, the stigma attached to what had happened was was a lot. Um <laughs> I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about the stigma in a moment, actually, mm -hmm. uh, Elaine. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the one thing that struck me, you know, with, with what you just described is is the vivid recollection that you have of of that day and, and mm -hmm. the, the events around there. You know, I, I know this is <clears throat> you know, really a, a big deal for you in lots of ways today because, you know, this is one of the first times I believe you've actually shared your story publicly. Um, just talking about that stigma for a moment just how did that impact on you all as a as a family oh massively steve and we um in our house up until probably i joined the police um about 16 years ago we didn't say the word suicide it was never spoken about we didn't talk about how dad had died um which does sound really bizarre now um but we, we just didn't and Personally, um, I've lied countless times about how my dad died, how I lost him, because I've just felt that stigma as of the whole family. And there was times, and I don't remember this, but since um, since my mum saw you on TV, actually, Steve, she started to talk a lot about um, my dad and his suicide. And it's been really 
really enlightening to have those conversations. But um, she told me about times when we go into a local restaurant or pub for for dinner and um, people would point and stare and talk about us. And that's just awful. I mean, yeah, the the past um, 20 odd years has been quite, quite difficult with the stigma. Thanks, Elaine, for um, giving us that insight. Some of that resonates. I've got a family member who um, lost her dad to suicide when she was five and was told it was a heart attack and the whole family was in denial for a long time with the added pain of that. I, I'm interested in how you reflect on this and take that into the work that you've been doing in suicide prevention. Um, you know, I'm thinking about, we had a, a Jordan Legacy event about uh, when it should be talked about with children or what age it should be talked about with children. And the whole, um, you know, aspect of therapy, of, of talking about it within a family, what, what lessons do you think you've learned from it and tips that you would give to other people? A lot, Paul, is the short answer to that. Um, just taking it into my role, um, just getting people to talk about suicide and actually say the word suicide, because I think we we all as a society have a tendency to, to avoid that word because it's seen as a, a bad word, isn't it? And, you know, oh, if we mm. say that, then we may make somebody want to hurt themselves. Um, so just actually getting our police service and partners, you know, saying the word suicide, talking about suicide, being open about that. Um, that's been the major, my major intention, I guess, throughout my, my time in this role, um, because I wouldn't want people, anybody to feel how we felt not talking about that and not having that support. Um, the, I know SOBS, um, was around then but we weren't aware of it and I'm not sure that my family would have used it so another big lesson is actually to make people aware of all the support that's there because it has to be your own decision to you know to do that because it's a big step and um, it's a big step to you know admit things admit admit your feelings admit that you maybe need that little bit of support and I know I've mentioned before that um, it's like a it's like a sad club that we're all part of. Mm. And to find out that it's not just me who feels this way. It's not just Steve who feels that way. We all feel different things, but we actually have this connection that that brings us together and we can support each other. And that is a major thing, making people aware of the support and aware that they're not alone. And um, whether you've lost somebody to suicide, whether you've attempted suicide yourself, talking about that is just the biggest way of doing our bit to make things slightly better, in my opinion. Yeah, and clearly things have changed a lot since 1995, but what about stigma, just specifically on stigma within the police <laughs> and the families that you that you liaise with? Do you think it's changed a lot or do you think there's still a big problem with stigma? I think that's probably quite difficult for me to answer because I've always felt that stigma. However, I know that families do talk about it, they want to tell the stories, but there is still stigma attached. So I'm not sure that we'll ever get rid of the stigma completely. But if we all work work towards that, then, you know, it's it's going to get better and better. So I still think it will exist. Um, but hopefully it's not as bad as it was, you know, back then. And within the police service? I would say it's got better over the past two years because I've actually put 
things out, put articles out. And um, for example, Steve's story, put people's stories out, put training out to break that stigma. And my message to colleagues, every colleague in the service has been the same. Do what we can to reduce the stigma, break the stigma, talk about it and let's support each other. So I think it's got way better. And that's probably the same in most emergency services, I'd, I'd like to think. Today, we're talking with Elaine Malcolm, police sergeant who lost her father to suicide when she was just 12 years old. We're going to take a short break now and we'll hear more from Elaine after this song. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she had to Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. I. Something wrong now I long for yesterday Yesterday Love was such an easy game to play Now I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday Welcome back. Elaine, you and I have met several times, including on a number of occasions with representatives from the Samaritans, where we've talked about how we can engage and support young people when it comes to dealing with suicide. Tragically, suicide claims the lives of around 200 pre-high school children every year in this country. And by the end of 2021, A&E departments were experiencing the highest recorded rates of admissions for self-harm by young people. I'm kind of asking you to cast your mind back to to being that 12-year-old child as, as well, I suppose, to some degree, Elaine. But what do you think we all need to be doing better to support young children from a mental health perspective? So I've got two parts to this answer, Steve. I think um, I'm like a broken record with this. I say this to you a lot, but um, the NHS needs to have more money so that they can provide that service because it's all well and good um, us supporting children to get that help. But if the NHS is overstretched, overworked, and they can't actually offer that service, then it goes round in almost a vicious circle, doesn't it? So absolutely more money from the government to the NHS 
funding more kind of cams or programs whatever whatever's there to help um but equally personally i think we can all do something to better support young people and for me it is for for police officers and police staff and all colleagues training and having more specific well training more specific to asking children about suicide and trauma-informed practices so i've been on a really great two-day training course um a few months ago which was around trauma-informed practices so a few colleagues went on it and what i learned about children and their need to you know feel safe and how to support that it was invaluable I've, I've never had training like it it was so effective so having that type of training to to everyone you know to teachers to emergency services to anyone who can support but also we've I've, I've sent a lot of police officers and police staff on ask training so assessing for suiciding kids which again is really great and gives you that confidence to be able to talk about it with children where it's you know it, it's quite it's quite a difficult thing to talk about in general never mind with children so given is, is that a, sorry is, is that a, the ask course is that a course that's open to the general public or is that just the police or no absolutely it's open to to anyone and um, any it I can't remember the price of it, but anyone can can go on that training and, and learn the skills. And um, it goes through safety planning, how to phrase a question. It's great. Um, and then there's also the um training that's out there. There's quite a lot. Um, the Zero Suicide Alliance training. Um, we could all do that, and we'll all, everyone would learn at least one thing. Um, that would help in supporting anyone, but also children. I, th I think some great, great advice there, Elaine. I mean, the Zero Suicide Alliance, we promote their free training as well. And there is so much out there. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's something, as you rightly said, that we, we can all do, whether we're a parent, brother, sister, grandparent, aunt or uncle. Um, I think it's something that is kind of incumbent upon us to, to learn about, given that it is available to kind of keep our children safe. Earlier this year, the Jordan Legacy hosted another in its series of online panel discussion events. This one was titled Tackling the Mental Health and Suicide Crisis Among Children and Young People. On the panel, we had a range of expertise from young speakers, such as the incredible Danny Wilshire, who tours the country, speaking at schools and inspiring children, to Johnny Benjamin MBE, who founded the charity Beyond, which earlier this year hosted its second and the UK's largest children's online wellbeing festival. We also had representatives from charities such as the wonderful Ollie Foundation and the online support service for young people, Couth. Elaine, do you think schools could be doing more? And to add to my question, um, should suicide be more openly talked about in schools? Now, I've thought back, Steve, to when I was at school, when I was that age, and we never... Um had talks about mental health suicide nothing like that um so yeah um, i think it's really important that schools are open about mental health and what suicide is and what supports out there um hopefully that kind of early intervention will prevent some some suicides um for me what i really would recommend schools and, and the staff in the schools to to do is the trauma informed practice training. I think that is absolutely invaluable and would really help the teachers, the staff, whoever works there, 
to um, to be able to make the children feel safe where they can be honest about how they're feeling and hopefully seek the, the appropriate support. Excellent. I'd like to ask you what roles do police forces play specifically in, in helping prevent suicides happening to children and young people? I know you referred to the ASK training that you've been sending a number of the officers on. What, what kind of things are already happening within police forces? So for us, um, we have a team of school liaison officers and we have a few school liaison officers in each area of the county and they are dedicated to the, the schools in their area where um, they go into schools, offer support, link in with other partners to enable that support to be offered. Um, there's all sorts of things that goes on and good work that's done by the school liaison officers. Um, I don't know if they specifically talk about suicide. I guess that they would link in with different professionals to to do that. But obviously the support is there. Um, and again, I'm going to say it, training, training to our officers and staff. There's nothing better than having, well, than sending people on a good training course where you know it will make a difference, you know, to, to everybody, to vulnerable adults, children, young people, everyone. And um, that, that's what's happening um, across our county. It's great to hear you talking there, Elaine, about the work that, um, you know, the police do in schools and the training for your officers. I'm just interested in uh, what, whether people's perceptions have fundamentally changed of when they encounter people in the streets or in, the, in, in going about their policing work where somebody has a mental health issue. There's been lots of incidents in the news and sadly a lot, a lot of, you know, tragic events unfolding from, from some of those incidents and also uh, some issues about, uh, you know, sectioning somebody with mental health issues and so on, rather than trying to give them the mental health support that they need outside of the mental health system. Are these live issues that you're discussing within the police? Absolutely, Paul. And that is one of the main things that's, that I do as part of my role. Um, we actually have mental health professionals that work with us um, in our buildings and in our um, control room. So we're hopefully able to get the person who um, may be in crisis the best support and quicker. And um, that is um, the services that we have that are invaluable um, because, you know, it, it does prevent often um, things from going, going any further. Um, things have absolutely changed. I think the media has a lot to do with it. And we're all more aware of mental health, of poor mental health, of, you know, a lot of us are aware of how, how we can help people. Uh, yes. Elaine, I'm really interested. You said you've been in the role for two years. We know the different police forces around the country are more advanced or less advanced in, in tackling these kinds of issues. What was what was was there a particular trigger for you? Being in that role, was it a new role? It wasn't a new role. Um, it's something that I think in force has been around probably since 2016. I may be wrong, it may have been before that. However, it's evolved. Um, in say 2016, 2017, there was one person doing the job. Now um, there is, well, I have a team of six officers 
then there's me as the operational lead. We have a tactical lead and we have a strategic lead. So there's absolutely more, um, well, lots of people working on it because we really want to make that difference and make it better for people who may be in crisis or feeling suicidal. So um, although it's not a new role, it has evolved a lot and there's a lot that goes into it. So, Elaine, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Jordan Space today. And thank you also for being brave enough to share your own very personal story with our listeners. I'm, I'm certain your words will have been of huge help uh, to a lot of those tuning in today. And if there's one key word I've taken away today, I think, from you, and that is training. Would that be right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I know I say it a lot, but training um, it, it's just great. There's some great training packages out there, and I'd really, really recommend that everybody does at least one. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for for joining us. It's been really great to have you on board. Thank you, Steve, and thank you for everything that you do with suicide prevention. Uh, well, Danny, Paul, thank you both, uh, as always. That's show number four done until uh, we return in a couple of weeks. Uh, once again, another hugely powerful story. Um, Danny, what, what was it you particularly took away from our conversation with Elaine today? Um, yeah, just really from when she was sort of recounting um, when it all happened that day and and sort of um, all the attention that, that came from it, the media attention and and the journalists and everything like that. And, and I, it just struck me how um, it's almost gone the other way now because although we, we speak about it more now than we did then, um, there's almost so many suicides now that it's not covered like that. You know, if you'll hear a news story um, about a car accident that day, that's, you know, where multiple people have died, but you don't hear about all the people who have died that day from suicide. Um, so you just don't get that kind of coverage anymore. And it's, um, That's a really, really good point. Um, and you'd hate to think that suicide had become normalised in, in any way. I think it's a really good observation just how that has, has changed now. Paul, what, what was some of your kind of takeaways really from today? Well, it was interesting to reflect on what happened in, in 1995 and what's happening now in terms of what the police are doing and the work that Elaine's been doing. Clearly, you'd hope a lot has changed and Elaine did talk about some of the things that have changed, but is she saying still, even still today, it's hard for the family to talk about this and it's probably still hard for some police officers to talk about and that's that's part of the issue. Then there's the media intrusion. Um, the, the, it, it made me think about that event, which you mentioned the event that we had about schools and young people. And I remember talking there about, you know, the number of kids who experience loss and grief more generally, and that's not talked about in schools, you know, so something that impacts on virtually every child, losing grandparents and so on, you know, it should just, that should just be normal conversations. And then suicide loss is a part of that conversation and, and try and take the stigma out. Training, as you mentioned, features strongly. The police obviously have a big training oriented culture and they do what they're trained to do, and then they gain experience, and then they have reflective training. And so suicide, mental health, just has to be part of that culture, as, as Elaine really emphasized and demonstrated. Great, well, look, thank you. Uh, thank you both. And uh, to everyone listening, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. And if you have any comments or questions about any of the points uh, discussed today, please uh, find The Jordan Legacy on Twitter, at Jordan Legacy UK, 
or at the same address on Instagram. You can also visit our website and get in touch at thejordanlegacy.com. That's it from Danny, Paul and me for this week. Um, Look after yourselves and those close to you as well. I'm Steve Phillip. This has been Jordan Space, and we look forward to having you join us for our next show very soon.